Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Uh, I've been thinking about an issue over the past couple of weeks that we don't really talk about a lot in our church culture, and and it's maybe an old-fashioned type of statement that you hear older people uh, talk about, and it's this whole issue of being a God-fearing person or the fear of the Lord. We live in a culture today that does not really understand what it means to fear the Lord. Um, And so when we talk about fearing the Lord, what does it really mean? Uh, A lot of us have various different phobias when we think about things that we're afraid of. I am somewhat fearful of heights. Um, When I was a kid and I was growing up in Texas, there was this mall we used to go to that was a three-story mall, and I got very nervous walking close to the railing. Um, I I never liked being up in the balcony as as a kid. Um, I'm also claustrophobic. Um, The worst thing for me would be to go to St. Louis and ride the Gateway Arch, being in that little compartment, uh, inching my way up to the very top. uh, That would just uh, drive me crazy. I'm fear of heights and and claustrophobia. Uh, Maybe you have pagonophobia. That's a fear of beards. Maybe you don't like having a beard. Xenoglossophobia, you have a fear of foreign languages. Abataphobia, you have a fear of being close to high buildings. Didascalinophobia, fear of school. Isotropophobia, fear of mirrors. Jellyophobia, you have a fear of laughter. Maybe you have lacanophobia, a fear of vegetables. Or maybe you have metrophobia, you have a fear of, of poetry. A lot of different fears out there. Uh, But this whole idea, this concept of fearing God, really shows up over 300 times in the Bible. We see it both in the Old and New Testaments. And so this morning what I want us to do, um, actually whenever you're listening to this, it could be this morning, this afternoon, what I want us to do is to um, do a biblical theology of this whole idea of what it means to fear the Lord, because it's an important word. We don't use it a lot. We tend to use the word worship or praise or obedience. But the fear of the Lord is a biblical term that shows up all throughout the scriptures. So let's first start with the Old Testament written in Hebrew. Uh, The Hebrew word is yareh. And as you look at this word in the Hebrew, it has two predominant meanings. Now, when you do word studies in the Bible, context determines the ultimate meaning of a word. Uh, So just if you look up something in a Strong's Concordance or in some type of lexicon, just by looking at the entry of the word, uh, that doesn't give you much. You really always have to look at the context of the passage to determine its meaning, especially with Old Testament Hebrew. And one of the ways that this Hebrew word, to be fearful or to fear, really means to be terrified. It carries the idea of terror. But at the same time, depending on context, it can also mean worship. So in the Old Testament, there is a terror fear and there is a worship fear. 
And both of these unfold in the Old Testament. So when you go back to Genesis with Adam and Eve, they disobey God's direct command not to eat of the tree. Their eyes were open. They knew they had sinned. They hid themselves in shame and terror. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, is God saying this because he doesn't know where they are? God is somehow not omniscient. No, this is a motif that's often used in the Old Testament where God is the judge and he's calling uh, the guilty culprits to the stand uh, to come out and face to face the music. And that's really what he's doing here. Um, and Adam says this, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was afraid. I was fearful. Why did Adam hide himself? He was afraid. Now, is that a worship fear or is that a terror fear? Context determines the meaning. I believe it was more of a terror fear. He understood the punishment. He knew that he had violated God's direct command and that breaking God's law, breaking God's command goes with consequences. And he was going to have to face the music. The word also shows up in Exodus when Moses had the experience with God at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of, Oz the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, this could be a combination of terror, fear, and worship fear, but I really believe that when you see a burning bush that's not being consumed and the voice of God coming from that, you would experience somewhat of a terror fear being in the presence of a holy God who was a consuming fire. When Israel, under the leadership of Moses, was at the base of Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and God appeared to them in smoke and in fire and in thunder and lightning over the mountain, giving the Ten Commandments. Uh, Moses reminds the people um, of the, the terror of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 5, 4 through 5, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. While I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire. And you did not go up into the mountain. So one way this Hebrew word Yahweh is used to discuss the fear of the Lord manifests itself in terror, fear. It usually happens when God shows up either in fire, God shows up in holiness. It usually involves smoke, shaking, earthquakes. Oftentimes, people react by falling down in fear. It's a terror fear of the Lord. And yet, this word also carries the connotation of, of worship. The, the fear of the Lord is synonymous with worship and adoration. It's amazing in the book of Deuteronomy how many times the Lord, through Moses, warns the people to be careful to obey and to follow the Lord and to worship Him with all their hearts, oftentimes using that word fear. 
Deuteronomy 10, 12-13, And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Now notice the, the, the words that are all strung together there. Fear the Lord your God, walk in his ways, love him, serve him with all your heart, um, keep. So wrapped up in this use of the word, the fear of the Lord, is more of worship and service and obedience. Not so much a terror fear, but more of a worship fear that manifests itself in concrete ways of loving God and walking in his ways, walking in a manner worthy of our calling. You also see this in the Psalms. Psalm 19, 9 and 10. Fear, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Moreover, to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Uh, the fear of the Lord is clean. The Hebrew word there means pure. In other words, when you walk in holiness, when you obey God's word, when you find God's word to be rich, more, more, more desirous than gold and honey, and you desire to obey God's word, um, the fear of the Lord, walking in the holiness of the Lord, um, is, is tied to the purity of our lives. Psalm 25, 10 through 12, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. Here, fear of the Lord is tied to instruction and tied to Worshiping God for his faithfulness, for his steadfast love. Psalm 33, 8-9, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Let me just teach you a little bit about Hebrew poetry, especially in the Psalms. One of the key features of Hebrew poetry is what is called parallelism. And you can just see this in your Bibles and your English translations. In one verse, you will have two lines. And those two lines can be parallel in the sense that they are basically communicating the same truth, but they're using two different ways to go about it. And usually the words um, are, are, syn are synonymous. So, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So fearing the Lord is synonymous or parallel with standing in awe of him. So again, this is more of a worship fear of the Lord, a standing in awe of him, reverence and respect because he is our creator. Psalm 103, 11 through 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Again, this is an idea of fearing God, worshiping him for his steadfast love, for his forgiveness. Uh, Psalm 118 verse 4, let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, so again, it's a worship type of fear of the Lord. How does Proverbs begin? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
Again, this is the worship of God. This is the reverence of God. This is a, a worship fear. Uh, at the end of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You see it in Job, Job 28, 28. He said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So depending on context, it determines how you are to understand this Hebrew word, yareh. It can mean terror, fear. God shows up in a burning bush. God shows up in Mount Sinai. God shows up to Adam and Eve. They're, the people are fearful. They're, they're cowering in fear. They're, they're terrified for their lives. Or depending on context, it can mean worship. It can mean adoration. So for us as believers in Jesus Christ, whose sins have been forgiven, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us through justification. We, as God's children, no longer relate to him in terror, fear. You see, we don't relate to God anymore as a judge to whom we have to be afraid and fearful of punishment, fearful of wrath, fearful that God is going to smite or annihilate us. As believers who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we've been born again. We have union with Christ. We have access to the throne of grace. We do not respond to God in a terror type of fear. Now, can God do those things? Absolutely. Does God have the right to punish us, to smite us? Absolutely. But we need to understand that because we've been adopted by God through Jesus Christ and we are his children, we no longer relate to God as a judge to be terrified of, but as a loving father to whom we give reverential fear. God, as a loving father, poured out all of his justice and wrath and punishment on Jesus in our place as our substitute so that we would not have to endure that punishment, that wrath. And yet, this is still the same God, the sovereign creator, the holy judge, the king of the universe. And we need to relate to him with a healthy awe, to bow down in reverent fear. Not because we're afraid of God in terror, but because we're in awe of him as our father. I recommend a really good book to read, especially if you struggle with self-esteem, uh, people-pleasing, uh, peer pressure. Um, it's not pop psychology. This is from a very reputable uh, biblical counselor, Ed Welch, from the Reformed tradition, uh, who brings to bear the gospel and the scriptures. But he's written a great book called When People Are Big and God is Small. And in he gave, gives a really great definition of the fear of the Lord. I really like the way he deals with that in one of his chapters. So let me give you a quote from that book. He says, quote, The fear of the Lord means reverent submission that leads to obedience. And it is interchangeable with worship, rely on, trust, and hope in. The Bible teaches that God's people are no longer driven by terror fear, or fear that has to do with punishment. Instead, we are blessed with worship fear, the reverential awe motivated more by love and the honor that is due him. He makes a great distinction between terror fear and worship fear. 
So if we look at the Old Testament, we see that to fear the Lord means to bow in humble adoration of Him, to stand in awe of His holiness, to worship Him with all of our heart, to obey His commands. And here's the key. You can't fear the Lord and not let it lead to action or to a response. Fearing the Lord should always lead to grateful obedience. It should lead us to humility. It should lead us to thankfulness that the God of the universe has chosen not to annihilate us off the planet in his wrath, but has poured out that justice on Jesus in our place, has forgiven us all of our sins. So that's the Old Testament. The idea of a terror fear and a worship fear with the Hebrew language. But when you go to the New Testament... The primary word for fear is the Greek word phobos. We get our word phobia from it. And again, depending on the context, you can see that phobos can either mean terror or trembling, or it can mean reverential submission and worship. Again, the context determines how you understand that word. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, this is an interesting passage of Scripture because Jesus addresses many different types of fear in one verse. He says, don't fear those who are going to kill your body. Basically, Jesus is saying there's going to be persecution. You're going to be hated. You may even be killed. Don't fear those who can put you into jail. But rather, who should you fear? Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What kind of fear is Jesus talking about there? I think that's a terror fear. Fear God who has every right to throw you into hell because of his justice. But then when Jesus says, fear God, right down in verse 31, he says, fear not. You're more valuable than the sparrows. So which one is it, Jesus? Are we to fear God that we're going to be annihilated and thrown in hell? Or are we to fear not because we're more valuable than the sparrows? Well, it depends on what position you're in. If you are a child of wrath who's unregenerate and you have not repented of your sins and you reject Christ then you need to fear him who can destroy you in hell. It's a terror fear. But if you are God's child and you have been saved by grace and Christ's righteousness has been given to you as a gift and you've been born again and you're adopted into God's family, you relate to him as a father and you don't fear because you are of more value value than the sparrows. How do you see this idea of fearing God show up in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 9 Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, that's a great description of a local church. That defines, that one statement defines a healthy church. What what does it say they were doing? They were experiencing peace Uh, That means there was really no persecution at that time. Uh, They were being built up in love. They were experiencing the comfort and power of the Holy Spirit, that the church was multiplying. But notice what it says. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. You know, a church can grow in numbers, 
You can multiply. You can have great programs. You can have all this extraneous fluff that the world may look at and think, man, you're, you're successful. You're this great church. But if we're not walking in the fear of the Lord, we're falling short of God's plan for our lives as the church. They were walking in the fear of the Lord, which meant it was a lifestyle. It was part and parcel of who they were as a church. They were living lives of worship, of obedience. What about Paul? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is talking about our sanctification. This is talking about uh, cleansing ourselves from sin, uh, pursuing holiness, walking in the fear of the Lord, not giving in to temptation, worshiping God with a pure lifestyle. The, the same thing can be said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, Paul is not saying work for your salvation. This is not a works-based salvation where somehow you've got to earn your salvation by doing good works. He's talking about sanctification, your, your pursuit of holiness. You're growing in your knowledge of Christ. You're growing in holiness to be conformed to the image of Christ. He says, work out your salvation, pursue holiness, grow in your faith, but do this with fear and trembling. In other words, don't have a haphazard attitude towards the Christian life. It's very serious to walk in holiness. It's very serious to have uh, purity in your life. And so when you think about spiritual growth, you approach this with fear and trembling, a sense that you stand before a sovereign, awesome God, and our lives are to be those that reflect His glory. What about the book of Revelation? Um, obviously, you know, I can't go into all the details about the book of Revelation, but if you go back and read it, you see a very sharp distinction in the book of Revelation between two groups of people all throughout the book of Revelation. There are those who've been sealed by God, God's people, those who follow the Lamb, those who endure to the end, those who are the overcomers, believers. And then the second group are those who've taken the mark of the beast, those who dwell upon the earth, those who belong to Babylon. And so there's two groups of people. Very clear, the book of Revelation, there are believers and non-believers. There's the lost and the saved. And one of the distinguishing marks of a believer, one of the distinguishing marks of a person who follows Christ in the book of Revelation is one who fears the Lord. In Revelation eleven eighteen. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Notice how God comes in judgment. And how does he just describe those who are believers? Those who fear your name, both small and great. Revelation 14, 7, he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. See how interchangeable those words are. Fear God, give glory to God, worship God. It part and parcel the same idea of this worshiping God, fearing God. 
Revelation chapter 19, 5 through 6. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. How does God call his servants? How does God call this mighty multitude of believers? They're defined as those who fear him, both small and great. Now, I said earlier, 300 times this idea of fearing God shows up in the Bible. And we've just done a short survey from Genesis to Revelation, both Old and New Testament, a short biblical theology of what it means to fear his name, to stand in awe of his holiness, to bow in humble adoration, to submit ourselves to his lordship, to worship him in reverence, to fear the Lord God Almighty. But yet I can think of no better experience of a person who understood the fear of the Lord than the prophet Isaiah. And you're very familiar with this passage of Scripture. It's in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with one or with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. There's a few things that we can see from this passage of Scripture that really helps us understand what it means to fear the Lord. The first thing we see here is Isaiah experiences the royal, kingly sovereignty of God. He has an encounter with the kingly majesty of God in the temple. He sees the Lord upon the throne. Now, the throne represents the kingly majesty of God. He's wearing a robe that fills the entire temple. He is high and lifted up. We cannot even begin to fear God until we get a glimpse of his absolute royal sovereignty. Until we understand that God is the king of the universe, that he's absolutely sovereign, that he has the right to rule and reign, that he is the king of kings, we will never begin to properly fear the Lord. So one of the ways we fear the Lord is to bow before him as the royal sovereign over all things. He's on the throne. He's high and lifted up. His robe fills the temple. At the end of verse 5, Isaiah says, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of Hosts. So do you have this concept 
in your heart and mind of the absolute kingly sovereignty of God, high and lifted up as the king. Until you do, you will never properly fear him. So not only was Isaiah confronted with the kingliness of God, the the royal God of the universe seated on the throne, but secondly, Isaiah was confronted with the absolute holiness of God. He sees these flying creatures called seraphim, and, and what are they crying out? Holy, holy, holy. The thrice holy God. Now this is the ultimate characteristic of God. Nowhere in Scripture do we have a threefold pattern to describe God's nature. Never do you see God is love, 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 even though that's true. God is gracious, 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 or God is just, just, just. Those are absolutely true. But by His very nature, God is holy. And in the Hebrew language, when you wanted to emphasize something. You, you repeated it three times. Like in our day, we would, we would highlight it. We would underline it. We put an asterisk next to it. We maybe put it in bold, all caps. The Hebrew way of doing it is repeating it three times to emphasize the absolute transcendent holiness, totally separateness of God. Now you may be asking, what is the seraphim, this, this wing creature? The word in the Hebrew for seraphim means burning ones. And if you notice the description, uh, they're covering their eyes. Why are they covering their eyes? Because God is too holy to look upon. No one can see the living God face to face and live. They're covering their feet. Why are they covering their feet? They're on holy ground in the presence of the Lord. What did God tell Moses in the burning bush? Take off your sandals for where you're standing is holy ground. With the other two wings, they're flying. Most scholars believe that this represents their readiness, their willingness to be obedient to whatever God calls them to do. They're at his beck and call. And so in this temple scene here, these flying creatures and everything that's going on display the full majesty of God. The thresholds are shaking. The temple is filled with smoke. Isaiah as a human has an encounter with the living God who is high and lifted up. He's robed in kingly majesty. He's too holy to look upon. And what is Isaiah's response? Does he go up and give God a high five and say, you're my buddy. Oh, this is so awesome. Let me just bask in this. Now, what do we see? One of utter terror. You see manifested the terror, fear of the Lord in Isaiah. What does he say in verse 5? Woe is me. I am lost. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. I'm lost. We don't quite get the force of these Hebrew words in our modern context. But when Isaiah says, woe is me, sometimes we walk around, woe is me, and we kind of use that terminology, and we don't really understand what it means biblically. When when somebody in the Old Testament says, woe is me, they're literally pronouncing a curse upon themselves. He knows he is about to die. He knows he's toast. He knows that he cannot be in the presence of a holy God and live. He knows he is a dead man. 
What was me? I'm dead. I'm under a curse. I should not live. And then he uses the words, I'm lost. Some translations say, I'm undone. It literally means that Isaiah was coming apart at the seams. He was unraveling. He was experiencing a spiritual disintegration. He knew he was going to be destroyed. He understood his specific guilt. He was experiencing the terror fear of God. He is on the ground, shaking in his boots, pronouncing a curse upon himself, knowing that he's about to be destroyed because he's seen the living God. And and what does he confess? I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Notice that his sin is particular. God, I've sinned generically. No, he specifies the actual sin, the particular sin. I've got a foul mouth. And not only do I have a foul mouth, unclean lips, but I'm living in, in a nation that has unclean lips. He's very aware of his unworthiness, his guilt. He was in the presence of the living God, robed in royal majesty, the thrice, three times holy God. And his personal sin was so great in light of God's holiness that he experienced terror, fear at its worst. Now, most of you probably, hopefully, have read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. I mean, he deals extensively with this topic in this classic book. And I love to quote Sproul. He he says, quote, When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He's so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. God is too great for us. He is too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He is the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In his presence, we quake and tremble. Meeting him personally may be our greatest trauma. Now, oftentimes when I've given this quote, either in a class or in a context, we we talk about this in our new members class when we talk about the attributes of God. I give this quote. Some people have a problem with it. You mean it's going to be traumatic to meet God? You mean he threatens my security? That doesn't sound like the God I know. And I always have to give the caveat, without a mediator, without Christ as your Savior, without the righteousness of Christ, meeting God will be your greatest trauma. Now again, what does Isaiah see? He sees the King, the Lord of hosts. And if we're to have a proper fear of the living God, we need to have our eyes open. Both to the fact that God is absolutely king. He is sovereign. He is on his throne. And he is also absolutely holy. And yet, in this moment of extreme spiritual unraveling by Isaiah, this acute awareness of his personal guilt we find a picture of the gospel in the Old Testament right here. What do we see? We see atonement. We see forgiveness. One of the flying creatures, the seraphim, takes a tongue from the altar. 
and places a burning coal on Isaiah's mouth. Now, that, that would scare me half to death. Number one, seeing the flying creatures enough would be scary, but then they come towards you with this uh, smoking coal and right to your mouth. What are you going to do? Are you going to try to run away? No, he, he's unraveling on the ground. Now, you may ask, why the mouth? Why not his shoulder? Why not brand him somewhere else? Well, it was to address his specific sin. What was his sin? His mouth. His foul, unclean mouth. And in this, you have the announcement of the gospel. Notice what the seraphim says to Isaiah in verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The word atoned for means to cover. So we get the word Yom Kippur, to cover, to forgive, to cleanse. Think about what's happened here. Isaiah's greatest personal trauma with the living God ends in forgiveness of sin. Psalm 103, 3-4, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What's that passage of Scripture saying? God, if you kept a record of our iniquities, if you kept a ledger of all of our sins, who could stand? Who, who could come before your bar of justice? Who would literally be able to um, experience forgiveness? Who, who would be able to be innocent in your sight? Nobody. Nobody. But with you, there is forgiveness. You do forgive us of our sins so that you may be feared. Notice the wording there. God forgives sin. God doesn't keep a record of our wrong through the cross of Christ. Why? So that he may be feared. He may be worshipped. Now, think about Isaiah. The first response of Isaiah to the majesty of a holy God was terror, fear. He was undone. He was literally terrified. But after seeing the glory of God and experiencing the, the, the forgiveness that came through an atonement, there's a new type of fear. It is no longer terror, fear, but we see now worship, fear. Notice verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? That I said, Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. There's a response to God in obedient worship. He obeys the call of God on his life to go preach the message to the nation of Israel. Notice his response now is not, I'm undone. I, his response is now, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to be annihilated because of my sin. Uh, thank you so much, God, for your glorious forgiveness. And now I gladly obey you and fear you with a lifestyle of worship that's going to obey you and go preach to Israel. Now, what's the bottom line? I think we need a healthy mixture of both in our lives as believers. I think one of the dangers in our culture is that sometimes we can be too casual with God. We treat him as our buddy, as our best friend. And yes, is Jesus a friend to sinners? Absolutely. 
Can we tell Jesus anything and he accepts us? Yes. Do we have a glorious personal relationship with Christ? Yes. But he is still God. He is still transcendentally holy. He's still on his throne and he's worthy of all worship and awe and yes, fear. A healthy fear. Paul understands the condition of lost people who may not fear God, who don't live in fear. Maybe you're listening to this podcast and you don't really fear God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Persuade others to do what? What do we plead with others to do? Well, we'll find out in just a moment, but notice what is motivating him. The fear of the Lord is motivating Paul to be an evangelist. The fear of the Lord, the worship of God, the reverence of God uh, is motivating, is moving him, is prompting him to be an ambassador. Let's go on and read the rest of the verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, later on down in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a plea that Paul gives to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And as believers, we fear God in a worship type of fear where we relate to God as our Heavenly Father. He loves us dearly because we have been adopted into his family through Christ. We've been reconciled through Christ. Our sins have been forgiven through Christ. But for those who are not reconciled to God, to those who have not yet been forgiven, to those of you listening who may have not have trusted Christ for salvation, you've not been adopted into God's family, you need to fear God with a terror fear. I don't want you to be comfortable Right now, if you do not have saving faith in Jesus Christ, you are under God's wrath and condemnation. And He is a holy judge. He is not your Father yet. If you die in your sins without Christ, you will spend eternity in hell without Him, and you will experience the unending terror of God. But... God has provided a way for you to be rescued. He poured out all of his righteous anger against sin on his beloved son, Jesus, who died on the cross. And Jesus stands ready to forgive any sinner who would come to him in repentance and faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. And I want you to fear God 
not as a righteous judge who will cast non-believers into hell, but I want you to fear God as a loving father who's casted all of his wrath on Jesus in our place. And because of the cross, because of atonement, because we hear that gospel announcement, your guilt is taken away, your sin is forgiven through Jesus, we can respond like Isaiah did. We can respond with our whole hearts. We can joyfully say, here I am, send me. I will fear you, Lord. I will love you. I will obey you. I will serve you. I will follow you. And I will do it joyfully with fear motivated by love and worship and praise. So the ultimate question is, do you fear the Lord? I want to thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity today. It's been a joy to do this podcast, and uh, the next podcast that will probably come out will be uh, a review, a critical review of The Shack. The movie is coming out very shortly. Um, And my friend and I have done a review of The Shack, the book, because the movie hasn't come out. And I hope you will enjoy that. be looking forward to that. And so if you want to go on iTunes and give us a review and rating, we would love to have you do that. Um, You can get us um, on iTunes. You can go directly to seancole.net and download any of these um, podcasts directly there. Uh, You can tweet me. You can Facebook message me. uh, You can friend me on Facebook. You can send me an email. I'd love to connect with you. I do appreciate all the emails I have been getting of encouragement and questions. And so um, I do really appreciate the opportunity to be able to share this podcast with you. And so until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you, cause His face to shine upon you, and may you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.